This podcast was recorded on Thursday, May 16th at 1.15 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time. It feels great to have doubled the Green Party caucus because we've clearly doubled our impact. is feeling pretty good these days, and why not? Paul Manley is the winner in Nanaimo, Lady Smith. Thank you all. The federal Greens made history this month with their second MP elected to the House of Commons. The Greens have been riding a wave across the country. It's a really historic night for, for us and for the island. In Guelph. There you go. Ah, French history has been made. Voters are telling pollsters they like what they see. A record high number of Canadians, 40%, would at least consider voting green this fall. Uh, Elizabeth May is now the only federal leader that has more people who like her than dislike her. Political parties think they know what's behind the green attraction. One of the clear things that we've seen from uh, from this, uh, this by-election is that Canadians are really preoccupied about climate change. This week, the NDP and the Liberals both tabled motions declaring global heating a national emergency. Calling uh, for a climate emergency to acknowledge the severity of the situation. This is all about political posturing by both the NDP and the Liberals. The Conservatives also made a repeated point of telling Canadians they believe the issue is real. Climate change is real. Climate change is a global problem. I'm Althea Raj, and this is Follow Up, a HuffPost Canada politics podcast. The Green Party leader thinks the opposition's words are nice, but they're meaningless if there's no further action. But they're not prepared to answer a simple question like, so do you shut down the Kitimat LNG plant, which is a huge source of new greenhouse gases? We have the Liberals telling us that it's a climate emergency, but they want to build the Trans Mountain Pipeline expansion, and they will not cut fossil fuel subsidies. We sit down for a conversation with Elizabeth May coming up. We'll also look at another topic close to her heart. I know we're partisan, but do we have to be cruel? The level of decorum is getting rapidly worse. Six years ago, it was Conservative MPs leading the charge. Frustration turned to mini-revolt today in the House of Commons, led by a handful of Conservative MPs. Their target, the Prime Minister's office. I have had my rights taken away when it comes to representing my constituents on certain topics. Solely in Canada do we have party whips telling the speaker who shall speak next. Griping over the power concentrated in the party leaders' offices is nothing new. But now it's a Liberal MP who's trying to do something about it. We'll talk to him too. My name is Elizabeth May. I'm the Member of Parliament for Saanich Gulf Islands and leader of the Green Party of Canada. Elizabeth May, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Althea. I want to just briefly touch upon all your party's success recently. Um, not only are you the balance of power in British Columbia, but you've made gains in New Brunswick. You're now official opposition in PEI. Uh, you have an Ontario seat, and lo and behold, we have a new caucus member um, from Vancouver Island joining you in the House of Commons. 
What has changed? Well, first thing, I have to give credit where credit's due because the Green Party of Canada is the federal party and the successes that have happened with Peter Bevan Baker in Prince Edward Island and Andrew Weaver in British Columbia and Mike Schreiner in Ontario and David Kuhn in New Brunswick, they're all separate parties. We share the same values. We're all really close. Uh, so full marks to all of the effort locally across the country to win seats in provincial legislatures. So we're now up to 17 elected Greens across Canada, and that's pretty cool. But do you view that as um, a signal that Canadians care more about climate than they used to? That's part of it, but I think it's also a general disillusionment with the idea that any of the old three parties tend to disappoint and we'll say one thing in an election and something else afterwards. So uh, the fact that some of our candidates are disillusioned former liberal candidates who said, okay, I, I really believed it when I was out on the hustings in 2015, saying that 2015 would be the last election held under first past the post. I really believed that. One of our candidates uh, right now in, on Vancouver Island who's doing extremely well is David Murner in Esquimalt Saanich Souk. In 2015, his name was on the ballot, but it wasn't for the Green Party. And uh, he's getting a tremendous response at the door. So it is climate change, but it's also... You know, the sense of uh, having a, an ethical foundation, having a lot of integrity in the way we do our work. And I think that's attracting voters, uh, many of whom care about climate change. But And that's a big driving issue, certainly in Nanaimo Ladysmith. But I think what's happening across the country is more. How do you prevent... Um, the same thing happening in 2019 that happened in 2015 in the sense that I do think people are upset with the Liberal government mm -hmm. and they feel safe telling pollsters that they want to park their ballot with the Greens. But how do you counter what the Liberals are no doubt going to do in the next election would say, well, you can't vote for the Greens or you can't vote for the New Democrats because big bad Andrew Scheer is coming around yeah. the corner and you need to support us because we're the only ones who can actually form a government. I mean, that's what the NDP tried in Nanaimo Ladysmith just a couple weeks ago. The voters were still being told by the NDP that if they voted Green, a conservative would win in Nanaimo Ladysmith. Now, the election results on that by-election are the results, and we were 12 points ahead by a big spread. But, and the NDP had to have known that. But they kept telling people, don't vote Green or you'll get a conservative. I hope that some of that fear factor voting has promoted enough, prompted enough kind of voter remorse, like, oh gosh, why did I listen to them in 2015? Okay, so why is it different this time to your question? One is, Andrew Scheer may represent the, the same policies as Stephen Harper, but as a personality, he doesn't have that polarizing effect that makes people think, what well, basically makes people not think and vote out of fear. The other thing that's different is that the political landscape has changed, and we don't really know yet how much of a vote uh, the People's Party will pull from conservatives. In Burnaby South... Maxine Bernie is... Maxine Bernie, yeah. But he's at like 1% in the polls. Nationally, but he got 10% in Burnaby South. That's true. He got 3% in Nanaimo Ladysmith. In a close race, I mean, Nanaimo Ladysmith in 2015 was a close four-way race. That 3% vote that Bernier pulled out of the conservative tally would have been significant in a close race. Mm -hmm. So we'll see how it goes. I think it's very likely that there will be six political parties represented after the next election. And in that context, uh, the vote that's the smartest vote, in fact, the vote that's the strategic vote, is to have as many Greens elected as possible, knowing that we will work across party lines to get things done and to make sure that any minority parliament is um, 
productive and committed to things that Canadians want and not just trying to use every moment in the house for, you know, scoring points off each other. Um, in 2008, we had an election campaign with Stéphane Zion, and after the election uh, campaign, there was a lot of talk about forming a coalition government. The plan of the leader of the NDP is that the day the election is over, he starts meeting with the separatists to plot a coalition to overturn the results of the election without any... Do you think the country is ready to have that conversation again? Oh, absolutely. I mean, but I mean, it doesn't even have to be a full formalized coalition. I think the most successful parliament, certainly the most productive parliament in terms of passing groundbreaking legislation, was uh, in a minority parliament in the 1960s with Lester B. Pearson. He never formed a formal coalition with Tommy Douglas and CCF or NDP at the time. 17 MPs from a smaller party helped drive the larger party to laying down the social safety net that we almost Mm -hmm. now take for granted. Our health care system, unemployment insurance, Canada pension plans, student loans, and then the flag. All of that was done without any formalized agreements, issue by issue negotiation. You know, the government of the UK functioned in coalition. Governments around the world function in coalition. I think Canadians vastly, certainly the polling the Liberals did during the uh, Electoral Reform Committee, the results overwhelmingly showed Canadians preferred the idea of many smaller parties working together than one party having all the power. Do you think if the Conservatives actually win more seats that the Liberals should try to form a coalition with you or the New Democrats? Of course, because it means more votes went to people and parties and ideas that are probably not represented in the Conservative Party. But if the Liberals, you know, as the government, they get a first crack at Mm -hmm. trying to form government. If the Tories have more seats, should the Liberals try to form some sort of working coalition with you and or the New Democrats? In, as a hypothetical, when you have a minority parliament, it's a hung parliament. Yeah. Nobody's won. And the, the way that our Westminster parliamentary system works is, yes, of course, any, any party that has been in power has the absolute right to try to form government and convince the governor general that, that they can hold the confidence of the House. You can't do that without talking to each other and figuring out what do we have in common here? With whom do we have the most in common? How do we make this work? So the people of Canada feel that the way they cast their votes has resulted in the parliament they want. Would you make electoral reform a condition of working with the Liberals? Well, it's getting to quite a a set of hypotheticals. But yes, electoral reform is a critical issue for improving the fairness of Canadian democracy. And I see it, you know, especially in in an era of populism where somebody like Trump could become president of the United States or Bolsonaro in Brazil, protecting a future election from someone that we can't even see on the horizon now, getting 100% of the power with 25% support is, is, a, is something that needs to be discussed, and I think we need to fix it. Whether we make it a condition or just through persuasion or just through popular support, whatever it takes, we really do need to shift to a system of voting that rep, that where the way the Canadian public votes is the way Parliament is formed after the election. You've said that Andrew Scheer is unfit to govern. Mm-hmm. So I understand your, your analogy to Harper. He's not, 
you know, he doesn't represent 10 years of a government that a lot of Canadians were sick of. But if you think he's unfit to govern, surely it must concern you that some of your support could go to help elect an Andrew Scheer government. Well, I, I, I don't, you know, obviously the first past the post voting system does create perverse results. I hope that Andrew Scheer can remedy what his current problem is. His current problem is willful ignorance. Anyone in political life, particularly anyone who claims the title of leader, who has never bothered to sit down and have someone brief them on the science is unfit to govern. That that could potentially be remedied before the next election. I mean, I I don't think that, that, you know, adherence to ignorance is really something that, that encourages voters to support you. You really, I mean, any leader has to be prepared. And I don't know how many briefings the others have had. But I, I certainly know that uh, the NDP and the Liberals talk about understanding climate science. They just haven't put forward anything that suggests they actually understand it. But to be willfully ignorant is another thing. But if that's the way you feel, surely it must concern you that you could help elect him. I don't think we could. I mean, the, the voting, again, with, with votes being polled from the conservative tally for Max Bernier and the People's Party, and we don't know how many it will be. But as I said, even with the 3% in Nanaimo Smith or the 10% in Burnaby South, the conservative vote is going to be split. And we have to make sure as we go forward that the that voters are encouraged to vote for what you want. And the more you vote for what you want, you're more likely to have a minority parliament with six parties trying to figure out how do we work together. And in that scenario, the more elected Greens you have, the better. I think we don't yet know what Andrew Shearer's climate plan is. His yeah. speech on climate is supposed to be the last one that he will give, so we'll hear that in a couple of weeks. Um, but we have some indication of where he's going to go. He said he will scrap the carbon, the price on carbon. Mm-hmm. Um, we can look at Jason Kenney's government. We can look at Scott Moe's government, at Doug Ford's government. These are um, premiers who are quite close uh, to the Shear team with an, an indication as to what their climate plan would be. Do you see anything in that that you could find satisfactory? So we'll see. I think it's deeply unlikely, Althea, let's just be clear. I think it's deeply unlikely that what Scheer proposes on climate action will be remotely acceptable to Greens. But neither is what the Trudeau Liberals are presenting and neither is what the Scheer, what the Jagmeet Singh NDP are proposing. They, they to varying degrees, use the right words and use the right language, but they don't deliver. We've talked about this in the fall when the UN climate change report came out about the liberals falling short, Uh, not only that their targets are the Stephen Harper targets, but they're not even close to meeting them and they're not doing anything close to what the UN expert panel says they need to do to prevent catastrophic climate change. Right. Do you think the prime minister is a fake environmentalist? I don't like to throw around labels. Uh, the, the the liberal administration as a whole has utterly failed to deliver on what they promised in the 2015 campaign. The failure to change the target to what is required by science. I was in late night debate last night in the House in adjournment proceedings, and the parliamentary secretary, Sean Fraser, who's you know, a remarkably good guy. I'm going to give him credit. I think he really does understand the issues and wants to do more. But in one of his answers, he said, we'll do better after 2030. Oh, look, read the IPCC report. There is no after 2030 to do better. We either hit, which for Canada is going to be more than 45% reductions below 2010 levels by 2030, 
or the window on holding the 1.5 degrees Celsius closes. And translating all that numbers, what I'm saying is we either act soon in order to put in place the policies that are needed for deep reductions by 2030, or we say goodbye to a livable world. You've got to actually commit to we're going off fossil fuels. We're going to be 100% off fossil fuels by 2050. But that means we're going to be at least 50% off fossil fuels by 2030. This is what it looks like step by step. But do you think that's realistic? Well, if we want to avoid extinction, it kind of has to be. The prime minister is sitting on a pipeline. The government has to make a decision. It says it will do so after the House has risen, probably in June. Mm -hmm. The early indications seem to be that they are going to say yes, um, that they are going to uh, ask Jason Kenney to keep the, the cap on the oil sands development. They will bring in a federal carbon price because Mr. Kenney has said he's getting rid of the provincial carbon price. What does that signal to you? Well, it means that the liberal grand plan for how to handle climate has fallen apart. The grand plan was the pan-Canadian framework with friendly premiers and basically collecting up what other levels of government were doing anyway, putting them together as a patchwork and saying, here we have a plan. It's not going to work. We actually need federal leadership. But let's find those other partners. Largely, it's going to be, let's face it, municipal order of government where you have great leadership historically and make it work so that we actually, as a country, start being in a position that we can pressure other countries to do more. Do you not worry, though, about national unity? I mean, I know you're opposed to the Trans Mountain Pipeline, but when you listen to people from Alberta and you listen to people from Saskatchewan, they really, they are hurting and they really feel like the rest of the country is against them. It's important to look at evidence, and there is no evidence that the Trans Mountain Pipeline is in the national interest. There is no evidence that the Trans Mountain Pipeline is even in Alberta's best economic interests. Unfortunately, a whole lot of propaganda has clouded this discussion. But there's no reason to presume, for instance, that the only market for Alberta oil sands is China. China doesn't want our bitumen. If China had wanted our bitumen, Trans Mountain would have, Kinder Morgan would have proceeded with the pipeline as a project that made sense in the free market. It didn't make sense. So there is a market for Alberta oil, and it happens to be in Canada. That would be, I think, a reasonable common ground start. As you know, I've been talking about refineries and upgraders in Alberta for ages, that that makes more sense on a declining basis than importing foreign oil. Just to give you one stat, every day, Eastern Canada imports 700,000 barrels of foreign oil. The Kinder Morgan pipeline, if expanded, would carry 590,000 barrels for export. Does anyone see anything wrong with this picture? And we're fighting and tearing each other up over this when there's a solution that meets everybody's needs, including more unionized jobs for more uniform workers in Alberta? I don't know why we're tearing each other up, but I believe that the driving incentive for Jason Kenney and the driving incentive for, giving, for granting the Kinder Morgan pipeline permit to Rachel Notley to start with was all short-term politics and not evidence. I want to ask you about this hot rumor going around Ottawa and in British Columbia, apparently, that Jody Wilson-Raybould is in negotiations with you to become either leader of the party or co-leader of the That's party. That's so crazy. I don't know where that came from. That's not true. Jody Wilson-Raybould, Jane Philpott, and I, as all of us, I think, have been as individual 
citizens, parliamentarians, women and friends, we've just been really open about it. We're talking to each other. But it isn't the conf- it isn't a negotiation where anyone's offering like you could get this or you could get that or I want this or I want that. It's not that kind of conversation. It's saying, look, you've been burned by being in parties where there's a lot of top down uh, control. What we can say is in the Green Party, stand on your own two feet. You represent your constituents. That's in, and with integrity. And that's what Jane Philpott and Jody Wilson-Raybould have done from the moment they were elected. So I think we represent a place where they might be comfortable. But no one's asking for a tangible perk and no one's offering a perk. It's a conversation and I don't have any idea what they'll decide. But you are going to be the leader of the Green Party going into this election. Because the Constitution, the Green Party can't be changed fast enough to change that. But nobody's, you know, it's not something that has ever been suggested to me even in the least bit of innuendo or hint that that's something that either of them would want. As There's been no suggestion of that whatsoever. Elizabeth May, thank you. Thank you, Althea. Elizabeth May is the leader of the Green Party of Canada. After losing a Vancouver Island by-election to the Green Party and being stung by one of his own candidates over climate change, NDP leader Jagmeet Singh tried to claim or reclaim some environmental credentials this week. Does that mean the New Democrats are feeling threatened by new Green support? HuffPost reporter Zian Lum went to find out. Uh, Charlie Angus, Member of Parliament for Timmins James Bay. Do you think the Green Party is going to eat the NDP's lunch this upcoming election? Um, I think the issues that are facing Canadians, increasingly precarious work, uh, a real rotten deal for working people, uh, and a real growing concern over the climate crisis is a much broader issue. Um, And I don't see that the Greens are answering a number of the fundamental questions that my voters want to hear about. So... um, I think we've seen the, the, you know, it's good that we have a, a green voice, but what you're seeing in the environmental push that's happening around the world is really tying it also to economic insecurity. We see that with what's happening with the, de- you know, the left Democrats in the U.S., and that's the voice of the new Democrats. That's where we've always been. So your answer is no. My answer is absolutely not. My name is Jenny Kwan. I'm the Member of Parliament for Vancouver East. Okay, so looking forward to the election, do you think climate change is going to be a ballot box issue? Well, I think climate emergency uh, will definitely be an issue uh, that is on the, in the hearts and minds of Canadians. Uh, and uh, that issue, as well as affordability issues, uh, issue around uh, access to safe, secure, affordable housing, universal pharmacare, for example. So there, I think there are many issues, but climate emergency uh, will certainly be amongst one of them. My name is Alistair McGregor. I'm the NDP Member of Parliament for the riding of Couch and Malahat Langford, and I came to the House of Commons for the class of 2015. Let's talk about the Green Wave. How worried is the NDP about uh, the Green Party? Well, my riding of Couch and Malahat Langford is directly south of Nanaimo Ladysmith. The Greens have always been a presence on Vancouver Island because I find that my residents always have a pretty high concern of environmental issues, notably climate change. 
With respect to Nanaimo Ladysmith, you know, I know Paul Manley, uh, we go all the way back to 2008. And you know, Paul, uh, to be fair to him, he put a lot of work in. He's very well known in the city of Nanaimo. He does have strong social democratic roots because his family used to be, uh, like his father used to be a former NDP member of parliament. And I think that what I can take away from Nanaimo Ladysmith is that there's a, a sincere dissatisfaction with the way things are going in Ottawa. And on that front, I very much agree with them. People always want rule changes. Hi, I'm Larry Bagnell, Chair of Procedure and House Affairs Committee. MPs don't like voting all night. Like I think we voted for 48 hours straight. I was the only person that didn't miss a vote. <laughs> but uh, so things like that, um, uh, coming from far away, I hate the fact that we, as for example today, that we're voting afternoon on a Thursday because it means I can't get back to my ride. I have to stay overnight in uh, Vancouver and I'm missing a lot of things in the riding but for people like me that takes 28 hours every weekend to get home in six planes um, voting on Thursday afternoons is is not good so there's a renewed effort on Parliament Hill to change how the House of Commons works. Liberal MP Frank Bayliss has been working with MPs from all parties, and some of his proposed changes would make life more manageable for members of Parliament. No more round-the-clock voting, for example. But other reforms would fundamentally shift the balance of power, away from party leaders and back to MPs. There's resistance. There's resistance from people who would lose some of the power that would then shift to the backbenchers, so not surprising. Uh, David Christofferson, MP Hamilton Centre. I'm not necessarily 100% in agreement with every single detail. I, uh, I'm not sure that in, uh, how many members are, but certainly the vast majority I support and the, the initiative itself. I think that what's happening is that the public now are understanding that their parliament's not working as well as it should and there's a major disconnect so what the people that are being elected are reflecting the electorate's concern about parliament and the want the desire for reform and change and so i think we're seeing new members arrive with a mandate from their constituents go fix things because they seem to be broken so I'm uh, Bruce Stanton, a uh, member of Parliament for Simcoe North in Central Ontario and also the Deputy Speaker of the House of Commons. And I'm Frank Bales, Member of Parliament for Pierrefonds Dollard. It's in the West Island of Montreal. Thank you both for joining me. I really appreciate it. Um, so Frank Bayless, you've put a lot of things into this motion. Um, tell me what it is that you're trying to do. In a sense, I'm trying to take power and distribute it to the Speaker of the House of Commons to the citizens and to the members of Parliament. And I believe by doing so, we'll strengthen our democracy. And not only will we strengthen our democracy, at the same time, we'll bring a lot better de debate, more civil debate, more respect within the House of Commons, and quite frankly, be more productive as well. You know, a lot of people, um, they spend a lot of time here. I mean, Bruce has been here for a while. And um, we get these types of motions after a members of Parliament have been in the chamber for a while. You're basically a brand new MP. This is your first term. What made you decide that this is something you wanted to devote so much time to? So when I came here, I was quite taken aback at how bad the behavior is in the House of Commons and how unproductive the debates are. And I used to go around talking to people. And if I talked to someone that was new, they were as shocked as I was. 
the people that had been here a little longer said, Frank, you know, it's okay. It's not that bad. It's the way it is. And I made myself a promise then that I would never allow myself to become acclimatized to this, that I would never accept this. And so I used to go around talking to people saying, hey, why don't you try and behave better or what that was you were really good today or something like that and i realized i was getting nowhere the reason being is that there was no incentive for collaboration there was more incentive for confrontation so that's when i realized fundamental change had to happen if we're going to get better debates more civil debates and become a more productive house of commons you've reached out to a number of members of parliament from different political parties bruce is a conservative here um let me ask, Bruce, what is it that attracted you to take part in this project? Well, partly because I had done some looking at some of these issues myself. I'm a great believer in seeing innovation and always finding ways to make the administrative processes work better, in this case for the people at home, point of fact. Uh, historically, Canada's um, standing orders and conventions have evolved over time, just the same way our mother parliament in the United Kingdom has. We've evolved a little differently, but over a period of time, you kind of get this uh, acceptance of the status quo, and with the view that it's somehow immovable, and and that it's not, because in, when all is said and done, um, it's only MPs um, that can make changes and improvements to how we get our work done. My favorite part of your motion is uh, getting rid of the list that the party whips deliver. And maybe that's because I've been here for a while and I remember Mark Warra in 2013 standing up in the House and saying... I believe it's a not an issue specifically for me. I've, I've experienced a removal uh, of my, my right, my privilege. He but was upset with his party leadership because he had been prevented from conflict. basically speaking in an SO31. This is the the minute or so before question period where MPs get to uh, stand up and say nice things about the constituents in their riding or however they want to use that time. At the time when Andrew Shear was the speaker, he had said, you don't need to change the rules. There's no reason to do this. If you stand up, I will recognize you. If members want to be recognized, they will have to actively demonstrate that they wish to participate. They have to rise in their places and seek the floor. In the meantime, I will continue to be guided by the lists that are provided to me. And I think two people stood up, and then nobody stood up. Uh, well, I'll correct you on that. If you speak to Elizabeth May, she'll tell you that she tried for a very long time to catch the speaker's eye, as we say, and she wasn't able to. I don't think we're actually bringing something new. We're actually going back to how the system was designed. You're called the speaker because you're supposed to decide who speaks. That's no longer the case. I'll let Bruce explain. Yeah, it. I, it, this is a this is a pretty significant uh, change that's being proposed here. It's a, a major departure from how things have been practiced here. I think going back to, I'm thinking maybe Speaker Solvay. I think was the first one to accept lists that were provided by the whips and the House leaders. Essentially, the the, the story of the party. I had heard was that she had trouble seeing the end of the chamber oh, right? and she asked the the parties provide <laughs> her a list so uh, in any case that's how it's evolved to go back to what it was prior to that um would be a, a major change and i would I, I would think it would take some real discussions between parties for them to sort of seed their management of that i mean there are i, I believe that there are some uh, logistical uh, benefits by the way they do that I mean they are able to there's a certain discipline to it there's a better flow in the house you, you avoid certain issues at least the speaker does I'm thinking from the speaker's point of view now it takes the controversy away from the speakership in terms of how and who should get 
recognize when and where. Um, Make sure you haven't recognized like well, 30 liberals yes. and only 10 conservatives. Well, this is it. I mean, I mean, we try to do our best in that regard to make sure it is balanced. And, and you know, there are we do have some discretion uh, during the period for questions and comments after a speaker, uh, a member has given, his, say, a 10 minute speech. There is some discretion around that. And even that minor bit can be contested or you will see members that will get frustrated that they're not being able to get the floor when they think that they should. So there are some issues there I you know, would want to take a close look at. And, and ideally, I think with all these things, you want to have a, a collaborative, uh, agreed upon change if, if, if you're actually going to make these kinds of changes to improve the system that you do get broad agreement of the parties to do it. And I think Frank's been working hard to get that. Yeah, and I want to add to that. This is really, really important. If we want to get better civility right now. So one of the things when I first got elected, I read the standing orders and the only thing the speaker can do is throw someone out. So I went to see our speaker and I said, why don't you throw some of these people out? And he said, Frank, that just gives him a platform. And he's only thrown one person out. So it's a bit like he only has one thing, which is to shoot you. He, he doesn't have any other things. He can't put you in jail for a couple of years or a day or whatever. What will happen is if we give the speaker back his power. So I really I assume you mean like a penalty box. Penalty, and not, it, yeah, okay. yeah. So what, what I yes, what I mean is this is that what will happen, which happens in other parliaments and what used to happen here before Madame Sauvé is that if you were being very disruptive, the speaker wouldn't recognize you. He would say, you're not getting a chance to speak until you start having better behavior. So that he'd have a carrot and a stick. And if someone was behaving well, he would give them the floor. In our case, he doesn't have that. So you could have a member being completely disruptive and the very next day, the, the next person up to speak, I mean, it would be him or her who has just been very disruptive. That has to be taken back. And so I feel extremely strongly about this. So do many of my colleagues, I could say that on all sides. It will give us better debate, far more civility, which is which is a major part of what we're trying to achieve here. Some of the other suggestions, I think, just make life easier for a lot of members of parliament No overnight votes. Um, for the MPs who I was speaking with Larry Bagnell this morning, who's you know from the north, uh, no votes on Thursdays after 4 o'clock, so it allows him to go back to his constituency, or no votes before um, question period on Mondays. This idea of the the petitions, having a, a take note debate if you have 70,000 people who sign a petition, so constituents get to have their voice heard in a more direct way. Another suggestion was having committee chairs uh, be voted on by the entire House of Commons. But what are the chances that MPs will actually vote to give themselves more power and that their whips will allow them, frankly, to <laughs> vote to give themselves more power? That That is the, what they call it, $68,000 question or whatever. Uh, I'll tell you that in my discussions, and I've been reaching out to MPs from all parties to try and have a discussion, hear their ideas, see if they've got suggested changes. And I would say that the proof will be in the pudding if we ever get to a vote, who stands up to support it or not. But the the, the appetite for change is enormous. The appetite for change on all parties is enormous. And I want to point out one other thing. By our standards of Ottawa, House of Commons, yes, this is a lot. But when we've had the second chamber for 25 years in Australia, 20 years in the UK, when we had speakers having these powers in all the other parliaments, 
there's not a lot here that's new in the big sense. There's nothing new, in fact. In so the big not sense. revolutionary. There's by nothing any new. There's nothing revolutionary. <laughs> and yes, so by the Canadian standards, I'm asking for a lot of changes. But by the global standards, this is not even bringing us up to par where we should be. There's a lot of other things that could happen. So I really think we should balance that by saying yes, because what's happened here in our parliament, we've come to accept. Well, these things take time. We got to do another study. We have to do another study again. And it's my sincere hope that one way or the other, this parliament, the members of parliament will have a chance to express themselves in a vote on what they, what they believe on. And it would be my hope that the whips would say, this is how we run ourselves so that they don't twist our arms to vote one way or the other. That would be my hope. And that's what I'm working hard towards. One criticism I have heard from uh, some members of parliament is that, you know, and this is their words, I recognize that in my riding, maybe 10% of people are voting for me. Most people are voting for the party banner or who the party leader is. So maybe I should be part of that team. Maybe I should be voting the way the party tells me to vote. What makes me think, as a member of parliament, that I should be standing up and saying what I think if that's not really who who the voters chose? It's a great point. I mean, and because there is that sort of duality to all this, because we do run under a party banner. And we are, it's right and appropriate that we echo those party ideals, promises, commitments, all the things that they do. And we talk, talk about this to our voters back home when they ask us these kinds of questions. But we also are elected as a, as a member of parliament for all of the people there. Let's compare ourselves to other places like the United Kingdom. In the United Kingdom with majority government, the majority will still lose a number of their votes, uh, it, it, it would not be uncommon up to one third of the government can't pass its own votes because its own members vote against it. And what happens there is that they feel far more empowered to, to make what they think are the right calls. And, and they are balancing like all of us do. Do I go with the party, but I don't agree with it? Or do my citizens really not agree with what our party is going to do here because our citizens will call us send us emails letters and say look and and we can gauge hey this is something one person cared about hey but i'm getting a lot of calls on this other issue and i've got to hear these people and then you go meet them and they give you their arguments and then you say well i find myself between the party and the people i represent and here in canada if one or two times a year you vote against your party you might be considered well this guy is really out there <laughs> But that's not the case in other places. So again, I think finding that balance, and that's an example of showing me the party is too strong here, too much controlling. Is it that you should never vote with the party? Of course not. But we have to find that balance. And this is trying to rebalance the table, if I could say that. Thank you very much, gentlemen. Appreciate Thank it. Thank you for this opportunity. Appreciate Althea. Bruce Stanton has represented the Ontario riding of Simcoe North for the Tories since 2006. He is also the Deputy Speaker of the House of Commons. Frank Bayliss is a Montreal Liberal MP. He was first elected in 2015. The Commons Procedure and House Affairs Committee will begin studying Bayliss's motion later this month. It will also be debated in the House, but it's unclear if MPs will get to vote on it before Parliament wraps up in June. Sean Casey, Member of Parliament for Charlottetown. I, I do think that many of the things that we do here are in need of uh, reform and are, and are in need of common sense. And so my my hope is that Frank succeeds at this, or at least succeeds in, in some measure in, in getting unanimity, because until you get un unanimity, 
one side will accuse the government of not wanting to work or of, of something foolish like that, which is what we've seen, you know, when we try to get rid of Friday sittings. My name is Greg Fergus. I'm the Member of Parliament from Halle Elmer. I'm also the Parliamentary Secretary to the President of the Treasury Board and Minister for Digital Government. Um, I've been around Ottawa for, for over 32 years now, uh, only three as an MP, three and a half as a Member of Parliament. You have to be patient as to how changes come about. Um, so if it doesn't happen immediately right now, I think the most important thing is that Frank has started the debate. It's the debate that we should have as, as members of Parliament and one that will continue into the future. So I'm patient. My name is Scott Reed, Member of Parliament, Lanark, Frontenac, Kingston. Backbenchers are frustrated under our system. Uh, I think uh, people, uh, Frank would count in this category, but many others as well have meaningful roles in business or academia in their community and they're a little surprised to discover how little autonomy uh, they have when they get here. So my name is Karina Gould. I am the Minister of Democratic Institutions and the Member of Parliament for Burlington. I think parliamentary reform is something that's very important. Uh, as you will note, the government had put forward um, a discussion paper on changes to the standing orders a couple of years ago. And this is something that Parliament needs to consider very closely. And so um, I'm having conversations certainly with Mr. Bayliss himself to try and understand all of them um, and to make sure that we have a Parliament that uh, is modern and that is adequate for the 20 21st century. So I think there's a very interesting package of reforms here, but we're looking at them very closely. I'm Stephanie Cousy, Member of Parliament for Calgary Minipur and Shadow Minister for Democratic Institutions. I do believe that there is a genuine interest uh, within my caucus, the Conservative Caucus, to explore and to evaluate uh, these standing orders. Um, but I also think it's very important uh, that um, these ideas do not move forward without unanimous consent of, of all of the players, of all those uh, that the items within the motion would affect. Um, I will say sincerely, I'm not certain that the amount of time remaining allows for the critical and complete evaluation of all the ideas recommended uh, in the motion. And I would say that um, regardless of my personal opinion being for or against the, uh, the entire motion, and I, I would say the same um, in a, a recommendation to my party in terms of the evaluation of these ideas, because I believe that the time that rest doesn't even provide enough time for the evaluation of the ideas. Doesn't sound like Frank Bayless's suggestions are going to change anything, does it? Well, that's our show. What did you think? Send us your feedback. You can reach me through Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at Althea Raj, A-L-T-H-I-A-R-A-J is my handle. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, how about writing us a review? Like an election ballot, every single one counts. And hit that subscription button if you haven't already. Follow-up is produced by myself with HuffPost Canada reporter Zian Lum. Our wonderful audio editor is Mikhail Stein. Andre Lau is our executive producer. I'm Althea Raj. We will see you next in June.